When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN, and I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Uh, First things first, appreciate all the feedback regarding the rapid reaction episodes. Um, We've discussed three trials so far. Anexa 4, Cape Cod, and the ProCoag studies. So listen, tell your friends, give us feedback. Um, I think it was something really cool to help us keep up to date on uh, late-breaking, hot-topic issues that get published. Um, So I'd love to hear everyone else's opinion on that. Now, today's topic is toxicology-themed, and we're specifically discussing acetaminophen overdose. So very pleased to welcome back uh, Jimmy Leonard to the podcast. We dive into the rumac Matthew nomogram, all things N-acetylcysteine, the use of adjunct from Epizole, and much, much more. Now this episode disclaimer, this episode will be talking about overdose and thus suicide. So if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or a crisis, please reach out immediately to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. Again, the number to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. Now let's get to the episode today. And I'm joined today by recurring guest, Jimmy Leonard, and uh, Jimmy is the assistant director of the Maryland Poison Center and an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. His clinical practice includes Poison Center consulting and working in the UMMC emergency department. You can find him on Twitter at LeonardJBRX. Jimmy, welcome back. How have you been doing? I've been doing great. Man, have I been stressed because I thought we were talking about onychomycosis in the ICU, and then you tell me today we're talking about acetaminophen. 
Oh, man. <laughs> Scrambling for hours. <laughs> I'm good, though. No, we've been enjoying it. Nice, getting warm here, enjoying some of the outside weather, starting to do some gardening. We have some nice toxic plants. Our lily of the valley's coming up. We've got some spring crocus that's already done. I'm propagating some vinca to help uh, spread that out in our yard. A lot of fun. Okay, I love that. We're my wife and I are trying to start our first little mini garden. That sounds like you're in like advanced level. We're at like the beginner, maybe whatever pre-beginner stages. Um, so I'm glad that I have someone to reach out to for uh, green thumb tips. And I love that it's you mentioned that there's tox plants in it. So that's it's even more perfect, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We've got a big fence around our vegetable garden, but in the rest of the garden, we have, you know, plenty of tox plants that, uh, that we've added in over the last couple of years. Um, so as we kind of discussed in the intro, uh, the focus of today's episode is going to be talking about acetaminophen overdose and kind of going head to toe, top to bottom, talking about the management and going into some of the nuances. Cause I think going into this, you, you have a set kind of you, you think of the algorithm, it's like, oh, this is what we do. But when you actually dive into it, there's so much differences. There's so many nuances, things you can do and to consider. So I love that um, Jimmy's going to talk us through a lot of that stuff. And um, we're actually going to be kind of using a patient case to semi-guide or help us follow through some of this discussion. So, Jimmy, why don't you kind of take the lead and, and introduce us to, um, to the case that we'll kind of be following? Yeah, Nick. I like that you mentioned algorithm and, and nuances because acetaminophen is one of the things that we know so much about. And yet at every toxicology conference, there are like 12 posters, 12 abstracts that are published specifically on acetaminophen. It's always something new. Um, so our patient case today is a 17-year-old. He ingested 300 tabs of acetaminophen arthritis. So it's the extended release formulation. And our first level was at three hours after ingestion, and it was 274 micrograms per milliliter. I actually didn't get involved at this point in time. I got involved, you know, this was like 3 o'clock in the morning. Things were kind of going okay. But I got involved the next day at about midnight, which is when a lot of really interesting toxicology cases Start is somewhere around midnight and you're waking from dead sleep. That's that's how I'm guessing a lot of these cases that you use, that's the start, right? I'm guessing the average time is like eleven to three eleven PM to three AM. Yep. Yeah, that's that's pretty much dead on. <laughs> so the and I'm gonna review you hit a couple numbers. We'll review those for the listeners before we kind of get into some of the things, but talk us into the pathophysiology of acetaminophen-induced liver injury, right? The thing that we're kind of worried about, what leads us to the, you know, our ultimate concern in in these cases. And um, I say that with the understanding that I think we're learning now that it's way more complicated than we previously thought of something exclusively just we give glutathione and everything's better. It is way, way, way more complicated than that. <laughs> and there's a lot of hand-waving involved, and we'll skip most of that hand-waving. But I think it's important to pull back a little bit to some of the metabolism, right? So acetaminophen, when you ingest it, is primarily metabolized to 
or via glucuronidation, about 50%. Somewhere about 40% is sulfation. 5% is just eliminated renally unchanged. And then another 5% goes through your SIP metabolism, right? And this is your scary SIP, 2E1, yep. sometimes 1A2, and, and a little bit of 3A4. But the big issue is that in massive or an overdose, right, you saturate your glucuronidation, your sulfation, and then you are essentially just producing more NAPKE, which is your toxic metabolite, through your SIP production. Bumps up to like 15%, right? NAPKE is a molecule that just loves to bind to free electrons and just electrons floating around. So it does that, binds to things like RNA, DNA, cell membrane proteins, right? It just binds and it does a covalent bond and then it just causes malformation, stops the function of those proteins, DNA, RNA, what have you. Most of this happens in, you know, we call it central lobular necrosis or zone three necrosis. It's actually pretty atypical for hepatic injury most of the time. It's because we have all of our CYP2E1 really centrally located in the liver, right? As opposed to other things that happen, you know, where your um, veins are coming in, this is right by your outflow. In massive overdose, though, and we'll talk about that later, we actually think that this, like, production of glutathione where you're trying to help recycle it will cause um, really rapid turnover and utilization of ATP and maybe some dysregulation of that. We also think that acetaminophen might uncouple oxidative phosphorylation, which is really important for energy production, yeah. and that will have effects like an early metabolic acidosis and an early, really high lactate. Um, ultimately, what happens, though, is that your cells just, Lice open, right? They go boom because they don't know what to do. Yeah. Some of that's triggered apoptosis. Some of it's necrosis, right? Um, and usually when we describe acetaminophen poisoning, it's via the four phases, right? So our phase one is zero to 24 hours, nausea, vomiting, really nonspecific, maybe some right upper quadrant pain. Our second phase is phase two. We start to see some rising AST on ALT maybe a small bump in your INR. This is somewhere in the 10 to 36 hour after overdose time period. And then you get into phase three, which is your multi-system organ failure. This is your liver, kidneys, brain, everything, right? This is one day to five days is where you can start to see that onset. And then you get into phase four, which is one of three options, death, transplant, or recovery, right? And this really takes days to weeks, depending on what's going on. Importantly, there's no such thing as chronic liver problems from an acetaminophen overdose, right? It's just a one and done injury, and then it resolves. It's not like hepatitis where you have this chronic inflammatory state, right, or alcohol use, um, where chronic inflammation and scarring, it's just boom, injury, and then recover. And your liver is amazing at recovering. But really what this all comes down to is you have depleted your glutathione ability to bind with your napki and, you know, then it's just free napki floating around in the liver, busting cells open. 
so when you talked about the 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 patient when you when you look into anything with um acetaminophen overdose, um, they're going to talk about nomograms or your acetaminophen levels. So when, when we're talking about a nomogram, what, what are we referring to? And talk us through a little bit about why timing especially is so important with these levels and figuring out in like time of ingestion if possible and things like that. Yeah, so we're talking about the Rumac Matthew nomogram, right? This is uh, Dr. Barry Rumac and Dr. Matthew. They developed this uh, in Great Britain many, many, many years ago. And essentially what it is is it's a, it's a risk nomogram. And it's an incredibly sensitive predictor for an AST greater than 1,000. It's not liver failure. And it, it's just AST greater than 1,000. That was the highest they could measure at the time when they were developing this nomogram. So they said, it's all right. It's very sensitive, like I said. It is not very specific. Um, we like to use times, right? We love it. And especially four to eight hours is a really good marker of this was the dose ingested, right? We, we can always pull toxicology back to Paracelsus concept that the dose makes the poison, right? So what we're looking at is what is the dose? When we get really farther out beyond that four to eight hour, 12, you know, 14, 16, 20 hours, what have you, the problem is, is we're now looking at patient's elimination. So individual elimination, ability to sulfate, glucuronidate, renally clear, unchanged. And we know that that varies. There's a study using the CHAOS data set, which is a study out of uh, Canada that looked at patients moving in risk zones, essentially, whether they're above the level or above the, the line, below the line, whether they went up or down. And very few patients actually stay in their risk zone, right? Most patients will move above the line or below the line during treatment. So it's not as good of a marker when you get several hours out. You'll often see multiple lines. The, the nomogram that's out there, r- widely available on the internet, has the 150 treatment line. This is a line that starts at four hours and it goes down to about 24 hours. Some of it's extrapolated. There's also the 200 line that's above it. This is called our risk line. Um, some people have published 300, 450, 600 lines. These are like two, three, four times the 150 line. Um, in the U.S., we don't use the 200 line, and it's really because when the group wanted to study acetylcysteine in the U.S., the FDA said, okay, but you need to add a buffer of 25% to your um, treatment line, and so that's what we're using now. Yeah, you're not exaggerating when you said it's uh, it's been a while. It was published in uh, 1975. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, and he's uh, he's a, a legend in this world. And when you dive into it, his name's on everything. It's like, you know, Manny Rivers and Sepsis. Um, you know, the they're kind of linked together, um, all of those things. But now, kind of going back to the nomogram, right? This is talking about the immediate release formulation, right? This is 1970s when they did this. And you mentioned, right, that... Um, 300 
extended release 650 milligram tablets is um, what what the patient in this case took. So I'm not a toxicology expert by any means, but I'm going to guess the toxicokinetics of these are different than what was studied in the patients in the 1970s with the immediate release. So how does that play? How does the effect play a part um, knowing that like, honestly, the immediate release or the extended release is almost more available than the immediate release sometimes when you're looking for things. So it's more and more common. These are things we're seeing more and more. Yeah. So, um, there are a couple of things that happen, right? Multiple, there's some studies that have been done that looked at whether acetaminophen just by itself, whether it's co-formulated slows the GI tract and it does, it doubles gastric emptying time. Right. So instead of 40 minutes, it's a hundred minutes. And that's just acetaminophen alone. Um, co-formulation with things like opioids, anticholinergics, so diphenhydramine, those really confuse the issue. There's a, a group out of Australia, I think Angela Chu was the first author. They looked at massive acetaminophen co-formulated with opioids in a lot of them. And you see basically peak concentrations that are happening hours like days out a day or a day and a half out so and then when you look at er formulation right historically what we were taught is that the er formulation is a combination of immediate release on the outside and then you know some sort of extended release matrix yeah and they said you know there's enough immediate release that you can use the nomogram turns out it's based on a fairly small study. Um, and so I stopped using it. I stopped using the nomogram. Right. And I basically have said, no, we're going to go based off of dose. We're going to be trending a lot more serum concentrations, right? Many of our, uh, extended release formulation overdoses will check a four, eight, maybe 12 hour concentration really looking to see if they line cross because I think the problem is you're not just looking at individual elimination here. You're looking at slowed peak, which is really dose, right? You're still talking about dose and it's really hard to interpret it. I mean, this case, um, our, the specific case, his first level was 270 to about three hours. And at 14 hours, his level was down, down to 260. So that's a half-life of like 180 hours, which either means that he has zero liver function or he's still absorbing drug. And we know, based on the rest of the story, that he is still absorbing drug. And that's that's what makes it so scary because this is an extreme example, but somebody could have a level, say, 40, right? And we think it's fine. They don't necessarily check that it's extended. You have the risk of, I want the listeners to know, as I'm saying this, Jimmy literally looks like he's doing the math in his head of like, wait a second, 40. Let me see. I guess what I'm trying to say is the the extended release, you have a higher risk of, of a, like a, a concentration that's like falsely low. You, you haven't hit your peak yet. And so you think you're out of the window, but you haven't even hit it yet. And that's kind of what you were describing. And that's the scary thing. You said it's it could be absorption or your liver hurting, probably both, right? And the problem is you don't know which one when, when those things are happening. So a lot there. Right, for sure. And there was actually an interesting, uh, I think, two-patient series that was published in ClinTox that looked at patients who had abdominal trauma 
Um, and they actually also had really delayed, elevated uh, acetaminophen concentrations. But yeah, when, when you are talking about things like the extended release, right, it, it just, it really complicates things. Um, so there are, you know, a lot of our focus is going to be on the pharmacologic treatment of, of the acetaminophen overdose, but... Um, there are right some other things to consider, possibly before or an adjunct to as you're starting that right and thinking of the the GI decontamination strategies. So, did you all utilize any any of those options with with the with this patient? Yeah. So, uh, activated charcoal is a big one, right? And we get a lot of questions. When should you give activated charcoal? And ideally, if you can, before they overdose. That way it's just sitting in the gut and it catches any drug. Probably not going to happen though. What's your, what's your, how often has that um, happened for you in your experience? Oh, never. times you've taken calls. Okay. I just want to be sure. Never, (laughs) never, never. But I'm just saying optimal conditions are before. Yeah. Um, But in general, we recommend after because that's when it always happens. Uh, And most acetaminophen cases anywhere within four hours is totally reasonable. Like I said, this guy's level was 260 at 14 hours. So we knew he was still absorbing drug. Um, they actually repeated his serum concentration at 20 hours when he had a little bit of a metabolic acidosis. His lactate was like 11 or 12. And of course it was an alligator, right? Just that little alligator greater than 400. Um, fortunately, our bedside med talks convinced the pathologist to give us an unofficial like wink nod level of 727. Um, that's what we would call a two exclamation points surrounded by a red star <laughs> value on, on Epic or Sterner. Yeah. Whichever one you're on. It was a very high level, right? Um, so at that point you could say, all right, he's clearly been absorbing this entire time and that level was at 20 hours. 20 hours. So there's still drug there. You can just go ahead give charcoal. There are other things you can consider wait, wait, before, like, before you, before we get into the other things, what's the, why are, why is there so much concern about it? It seems like something that you, we would just, what is the concern and why don't people give it more upfront? Do you think? So in our area, we're fairly aggressive and about giving activated charcoal. Um, and so we actually do have pretty good uptake. There's a lot of nausea, vomiting with activated charcoal. There was, gosh, it's been, it's incredibly difficult to study, right? Um, Because the problem is, is your, your population is a mixture of, you know, two-year-old children who lie unintentionally, but because they don't really know how much they took, their favorite number is two, right? They took things yesterday because that's the term they know, whether it was 10 seconds ago or, you know, or a week ago, they know yesterday, right? So that's your population. Then you have a population of patients that are like intentional self-harm. When we did a study, we looked at it and only about 8% had a level that was within 10 above or below what was estimated based on pharmacokinetic equations. So people are telling you untruths about what they took, right? So if you enroll a thousand patients and split them 50-50, right, 
right? And you have everybody that gets charcoal actually took drug or didn't take any drug and everybody who yeah, didn't okay. get charcoal yep. didn't take drug. Like it's impossible to find a good benefit. So the outcomes data aren't there and we really recommend it based off of um, good pharmacokinetic concepts and what we think might help the patient. Don't get me wrong, plenty of things have been done that we thought would help patients that don't, but this one has, doesn't have a lot of harms as long as you have a protected airway, right? The patient's not seizing, not CNS depressed, and you're not instilling it directly into the lungs, they're probably going to do just fine. We're going to put a pin in that. Um, we're doing what we think works. We're going to put a pin in that. That's going to be, we're going to come back to that. But I was asking because the, and I'm sure you're familiar, right? And there's flaws, right? Observational kind of single center, I believe. But the ADAM2 trial that looked at when you gave the activated charcoal with like the higher dose of acetylcysteine, right? Things got a little better. Tons of confounders and things. I'm just saying that's a pretty positive study when we're looking in the in the world of this. And it seems something like you said, there's a lot of misconception. So I think it's not given very much. So I wanted to uh, kind of at least ask or answer if some of those things. Um, so you were saying, I didn't mean to interrupt you because you were talking about there are other decontamination strategies you can use that aren't activated charcoal. Right, of course. And yeah, that, that Adam 2 trial was really interesting. I was actually discussing some of that with Angela Chu um, because she even said there are patients who claim to have taken 50 grams and they had an acetaminophen concentration of like 13. <laughs> clearly they didn't do it. And yeah. clearly it wasn't the charcoal that, that <laughs> snagged all that drug. Um, but moving on to other options for GI decontamination, right? Gastric lavage is one that's, that's out there. It's well reported before 1990, often referred to as pumping the stomach. We don't recommend it, and there are several issues with it. The biggest one is availability of the equipment and knowing how to do it, right? There are lots of videos on YouTube, and that's probably what you're going to have to be doing because it's unlikely you have any staff that knows how to lavage, even if you have the equipment. And the assumption really is that you don't have a clump of drugs that's, that's like, smashed together, right? The assumption is you have small tablets yeah. that can fit through 40 French tube. I'll be honest, I only recommend act or lavage for two things. One, blended up pills that will kill you. And two, colchicine. Because that will also kill you. And those tablets are itty bitty teeny tiny. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't bring me uh, much comfort when you said, you know, looking up YouTube videos right before you before you go and do something. The lavage always makes me think of the old school. You got too drunk and they're gonna have to pump your stomach. Right. That's right. the lavage. That's all I think of instantly when when I hear that. So that makes yep. sense why you wouldn't routinely do it unless literally if they absorb it, they're going to die, which kind of sounds like when you like what, right. the only time you do. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then we can also, we actually discussed whole bowel irrigation with this patient as well. Um, my actually biggest concern was that I was, I thought maybe the drug had formed a bezoar, right? So a concretion in the stomach and it just wouldn't make it past the pylorus, right? He's taken a Costco sized bottle of pills or a couple of Costco sized bottles of pills. Yeah. They're clumped into one big lump. That's not getting past the pylorus. So you're just pushing go lightly for nothing, right? Um, we did actually, and if you're going to do any of these things, 
right? It's a fairly unique situation. Maybe try something like CT, right? There are some studies that you can actually see clumps of drug on CT. Um, maybe even EGD. We discussed it with this with this young man. It was a little bit late, but we discussed EGD to try to help, like, go in with a basket and either break up drug or pull it out. Um, unfortunately, it took a little while to get the, the wheels rolling for that. Um, and it was after he'd had his third peak concentration. And, and like you said, this is never happening at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, right? It's oh. 2 a.m., probably Saturday, right? My guess, something like that. It might have been during the week, but it's never at it. So it, I, I, as someone who's worked overnight, I get it, right? You're, you do with what you can, but trying to get some of that same stuff can be logistically a little complicated. Exactly. Um, and I will admit a lot of my decisions in the very first, first contact were based on the fact that it was one o'clock in the morning and we could do some things, not everything. Yep. Yep. Survive in advance. Right. Um, so you, you kind of talked, are there any other, I think those are the three, those are the three decontamination strategies that I was, that, that I think of, right. Those are the three big ones. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, EGD with a basket, maybe pulling them out if you can, but it's not, you know, it is not standard, right? We're talking I guess, like I guess I fringe. thought that was cowboy, like Indiana Jones coming in with the with the whip on the side. So, okay, we got the top four. Well, it'll crack the Mount Rushmore of of decontamination strategies. Um, so, what are labs? Um, I think this is probably a as someone who is involved with a lot of these cases. I'm sure this is a pet peeve for you. Um, whenever I'm on it, it I always think it's funny because the 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 like overdose or like liver labs sometimes are aggressive. Like they're pre-checking like a thirty lab panel. You're getting like genetic testing and stuff. So let's say obviously there's going to be extremes, right? And there's going to be people where they do need all those things. But generally speaking. What are the labs that we need in addition to what I would say everyone knows the three, right? CBC, CMP, and the Tylenol level. What do we need to do in addition to that? Every single patient needs a copper and ceruloplasmin level. I'm kidding, Wilson's. of course. Wilson, I mean, that's like a, it's, it, the, it's the incidence Wilson. of that is going way up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding, right? When you have a really good history and you have an acetaminophen concentration that's 300, you can make it, you can keep it pretty simple, right? These are things like you get your acetaminophen at four hours, your CBC, your CMP, right? A PTINR. I really like a lactate. And that pretty much covers everything, right? And, and this is a little bit back to the nomogram discussion, but if you get an acetaminophen concentration, at about two hours, which happens all the time because somebody just hits the door and it, it gets drawn, right? It's less than 10, you're done, right? If it's greater than 300, you treat. Pretty much anything else, you recheck a four-hour level. And it's just because there's some studies that looked at it and basically anything else can end up treatable, not treatable in that range. So less than 10, done, greater than 300, treat go from there. If you have a patient that's anything but run-of-the-mill, comes in with a level, four hours, 170, right? That patient needs a CMP and a Tylenol, acetaminophen at when they hit the door 
right? At four hours and then basically 20 hours into your treatment and you're good. If it's later, like eight hours after, you might see a small bump in their AST ALT. I actually like to do something like a Q8-ish or get some CMP somewhere in the middle because I want to know if their AST ALT went up and then came back down. Because invariably, if you get treated at eight hours, your AST will bump a little bit. And if it's bumping up at the end of your 21 hours and you don't know if that's coming down, you're giving, you're giving them another bag, right? You're stuck treating longer. So anything other than that, I really like to see a, maybe a middle of the treatment level. In terms of the, the labs that, that, that we're getting, that we're trending in some cases, right? What are some of the, what are some of the criteria for the labs, whether it's truly objective with labs, maybe it's subjective with other criteria that um, are triggers for you to, to consider or really get them all hands on deck moved pretty quickly to a center that would be capable of a liver transplant, right? Meaning that this, this patient's at, at risk of needing a, a transplant for survival, like you said, phase four, one of three options. Yeah, my, uh, my big things, I, I still use the classic King's College criteria. So King's College in London basically said, hey, uh, you can't send every single acetaminophen overdose to us. <laughs> So we're going to try to develop some fairly uh, sensitive and moderately specific criteria that will say this person will die without a liver transplant. And what they looked at and they said is a pH of less than 7.3 or a combination of all three of these. It's PT greater than 100, which translates to about an INR of 6.5, a serum creatinine greater than 3.3, and hepatic encephalopathy grade three or grade four. So these are the primarily ones we use. Uh, Some others have studied things like hypoglycemia, so a blood glucose less than 50 milligrams per deciliter. One of my favorites is a phosphate greater than 3.7 milligrams per deciliter, and it really just has to do with when you destroy parts of the liver, it tries to rebuild itself. It produces energy, produces RNA, DNA, and in that, it's consuming your FOS aggressively, so aggressively that even renal failure cannot keep your FOS up. Um, FOS is the is, forgotten electrolyte. That's another example. I, I think yeah. it is literally the the um, like the MVP, the most or maybe most improved. Like it's I, it's amazing. Sorry, continue. But what a great phosphor there for for the believers. No, yeah, it, it, it's one of my favorites. They've actually shown this in animal studies where they did partial hepatectomies, so they removed part of the liver, and those that had uh, a high phos all died. Those that had a low phos all survived. It's amazing. Also been shown in humans. Um, and then the lactate greater than about three point three. Again, this is really are you? Do you have synthetic function, right? You're able to metabolize off the lactate. Um, most of this has been studied at two days after the ingestion. This is not 12 hours in, right? All of these patients have established liver failure. They have met that criteria way more than the AST, uh, greater, way more than 1,000, 10, 15,000, right? INR, 7, 8, what have you. This is not the person who hits the door and has this massive concentration that's probably 
uncoupling of oxyphosphorylation causing your lactate and your metabolic acidosis. So pretty, pretty delayed. Other than that, though, signs and symptoms, these are, these are the good objective criteria. These are what we stick to, right? We have plenty of patients, or we've had plenty of cases where people will say, you know, we just decided to transfer them earlier, right? Whether they met the criteria or not, sure. Okay. Do they need it? Probably not. They'll probably do just fine. So what did what did we do before in the in the world before N acetylcysteine came into the treatment of acetaminophen overdose? What like really options were there? So they tried other sulfur donors, right? And sulfur uh, containing molecules like methionine, cysteamine, uh, D penicillamine. Uh, we also did hemodialysis at one point, right? Maximize supportive care. I don't really have anything else so, for you. There's so, some other so, more morbid answers. So, and those aren't good. Well, I mean, the the statistics, like, speak for themselves, right? They they talk about before they tested any of those meds that you said, you know, the mortality was 30 up to 90% if your level got above 300. And, um even pre NAC, where you know they were looking at some of those things in the the level that we would treat, it was around five percent. That's so high, right now. I mean, the it's uh, so. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Like you mentioned, there weren't a ton of options. So N-acetylcysteine comes into our world finally. So like when, when was this found and... I don't know if you could talk a little bit about because from a pharmacist perspective and, and toxicologist, it's so cool. This is one of the most awesome examples of how they figured out the dosing regimen um, initially that they used. So kind of talk about when they found and how we found that kind of quote unquote standard dose that we'll dive into in a sec. Yeah, so this, you know, um, NAC really came to us in about 1974 um, and they basically said, all right, what's the production of NAPKI over time? And we're just going to model our acetylcysteine administration yeah. to, map, or to match your dose and production of NAPKI, right? So they're just trying to do one-to-one. And the idea here, right, is we know that um, N-acetylcysteine is the critical precursor for glutathione production. Right. And so if you're consuming glutathione and you're just trying to produce more glutathione, you give your acetylcysteine. We also think that acetylcysteine probably binds to NAPKI by itself, right? Has some other more hand wavy mechanisms of microcirculatory enhancement, right? But it really is about just upping your glutathione production so you can bind that NAPKI and make it non toxic and just excrete it. With the PO dosing, they kind of tried to model uh, the, the same for the IV. They give a much, much larger dose. Our current dose is about 1,330 milligrams 
over the time period, right? And actually, they originally only wanted to do a 60-hour regimen, just 70 minutes per kg PO every four hours. And again, with the Smilkstein study, when, when the group brought it to the FDA, they said, all right, um, you're already building in your safety on your nomogram, but we also want you to extend your treatment by 12 hours and add a loading dose. So it's really just kind of that dose is based on what the FDA wanted, right? But our IV dose is really based off of pharmacokinetics to match NAPKE. Yeah, I mean, how they how they came up with it is um, just really cool in terms of kinetics and using that and applying it into the real world of, of, of things like that. So my question is, uh, there's like somewhere close to 90% of our use is IV. So what is the role of oral NAC now? And then I guess the, the follow-up would be in the era where just me talking about this probably means someone got a drug shortage email. Um, do we have evidence for the use of the orals in some of these sick patients or maybe not the ultra sick, but is there evidence to, um, in those cases, give us comfort that, that it's okay to still use the, the oral formulation. So comparative data says you can use PO, you can use IV, right? Basically similar efficacy. It's not commonly used. Yeah. For a few reasons. One, it stinks. It's disgusting. It smells like rotten eggs. It's terrible. It tastes like rotten eggs. <laughs> it's the Your worst. Poop smells like rotten eggs. Rotten eggs everywhere. Everybody's yep. upset. Uh, it's also a 72 hour course, is what's recommended, right? So as opposed to a 21 hour course with mm. IV acetylcysteine, much easier. But you can use it, right? The, the only true indications for IV NAC where you have to use it are established liver failure, pregnancy, and inability to tolerate the PO NAC. So if they vomit a couple of times, not able to take keep it down, you, you have to give IV. And really interestingly, the PO NAC is generally the inhaled NAC, which is non-pyrogenic. And so before we had the IV NAC in the U.S., our poison specialists here would call the on-call toxicologist and say, hey, is it okay to filter the inhaled NAC and give it IV if they had a really, really sick patient? So in a pinch, that's what, that's what was done for a really long time. Um, I've only recommended and we've only used PO NAC, I think, once, and it, oh, no, twice was the same guy. Actually, it was once when he was about to AMA, and the nurses said, of all the things you can do, at least get a loading dose of this before you go. Um, and then when he came back trying to die, um, he was having fluid issues five or six days into his course. And so they said, hey, he's you know intubated. He's got an NG. Can we just give you know, a small volume of PO knack instead of swap, instead of continuing on him on the IV. And we said, sure, sure. But other than that, I just, I haven't used it. Everybody uses IV, especially in our area. I think a lot of the U.S. does. I mean, it's ease. And then you mentioned 72 hours. What are you going to, 
you're going to discharge someone. They're going to take something that tastes like that for two days when they feel it's just like, it's, it's, I get the logistics of it. So I appreciate you talking through it. Now we, we, we talked about the dosing. What is quote unquote, the standard dosing. And we'll get into, this is where it's going to get nuanced and people are going to be heated. Not you, but everyone's going to, everyone gets, everyone has their own stuff with, with knack and what they believe in. So we'll talk about some of that stuff, but what's the standard dosing regimen that we think of with N-acetylcysteine and acetaminophen overdose? It's bag one, then bag two, then bag three. So tell us, what a bag, wait, wait, tell us what a bag is. Cause when you look at it, when you go in the literature, I have like three or four articles. It's like one bag versus two bag, two bags versus three, a modified three versus a modified two. Like, like what are these bags? You know, I had to look it up to clarify exactly. And a, and a bag is a container made of a flexible material with an opening at the top, primarily used for carrying things. Sometimes they have handles. Sometimes they don't. In Maryland, they charge five cents if you get a plastic one at the grocery store. No, we don't have plastic ones. We only have paper now. Oh, even better. Look at that. And, and I only have reusables. Yes, yes. Okay. So, um, so what are they yeah, referring so, to, though? Right, exactly. Um, so our bags, and we'll just go through our standard dosing, right? Our standard dosing is 150 milligrams per kilogram over one hour. One hour. And then people will refer to as the first maintenance dose, if you want to make this real confusing, or the second bag, or the four-hour bag, <laughs> and that is 12.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for four hours, often referred to as the 50 milligram per kilogram bag. I can't make this up. It's, it's so confusing. It's just errors, 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 right? Bag three, right? This is our third one, standard dosing is 100 milligrams per kilogram over 16 hours, or said more simply, 6.25 milligrams per kilogram per hour for 16 hours. So I'm going to restate it because I like mashed things up for you guys. 150 per kilo over an hour, 12 and a half per kilo per hour for four hours, six and a quarter per kilo per hour for 16 hours. Simple. What makes, what made, what started all of the research into modifying this? Is it for, is it the argument for efficacy or safety? This is toxicology. It's rarely about efficacy, especially in, (laughs) especially when you're doing studies that uh, you're treating more patients than you probably should be. Um, But safety and, and not necessarily adverse effects, Right, that adverse effects are what pushed us to the 150 over an hour instead of over a 15 minutes rate, but a lot of medication errors. It's really easy, right, to get confused at one bag, two bag, red bag, blue bag, right? So we're talking about gaps in therapy, right, ease of care, and there are a lot of different interesting regimens that people have done. One bag, totally reasonable, put 300 milligrams per kilogram in it, have the pump set up to change the rate and go ham, right? If you can do that, either it'll do your 150, your 50, your 100, or you can do your two bag 
uh, treatment, which a lot of people are moving to as well. Also really cool. It's essentially 200 milligrams per kilogram over four hours as your first bag, and then 100 milligrams per kilogram over 16, right? Gets you out your 20 hours of treatment. Uh, in our area, we actually have a couple of hospitals. So we talked about our one, two, three bags that do a fourth bag. They just have this built. And it's really for if you have to continue therapy, right? Because um, okay. what they do is 150 mg per kg over 24 hours or just six and a quarter per hour over 24 hours. It eliminates Q16 hour dosing, which as far as I'm aware, Q16 is not a standard dosing interval in the hospital. But Can confirm. Yeah. <laughs> no guarantees. So when when I think of like hypersensitivity or like non-allergic anaphylactic reactions is what I think of when I think of adverse reactions to to NAC. Like what are when you talk about safety and trying to prevent some of that stuff, um, you know, is it is it trying to prevent that? Are there other more like more common adverse effects that that we're trying to prevent by by doing that? So it's it's fairly uncommon. I, it's it's hard to study. It's so uncommon, right? Maybe one percent of patients truly have significant anaphylactoid with hypotension, trouble, you know, respiratory distress, hives, what have you. Nausea, vomiting, probably about thirty percent. You might be able to drop this rate a little bit if you give it slower. Um, maybe down to fifteen percent. It's really well tolerated, though. It's so well tolerated, and we have tons of evidence. There are a couple of case reports out there, horrible, horrible case reports, where people were given 150 milligrams per kilogram per hour, essentially continuously, and developed cerebral edema, seizures, and death. Oh, my gosh. So avoiding that, definitely ideal. You know, and it's, they're just weird, unique situations where there are problems with it. I mean, that's something where you and I can commiserate, right? Because we, as a as a referral center, right, people transferring in, what you get told and trying to figure out, it is like hieroglyphics or people that just have no clue. They're like, I don't know. They said it was the second bag. I'm like, well, what do we mean, right? That So the the lack of standardization can be a problem when the patients, these patients can be sick enough that their whole, everything can change in 12 hours, right? 6 a.m. they could be in one place and then at 6 p.m. they could be at a at a liver transplant center that night and it just makes it complicated. But I get if they're trying to do safety, I can, I could see that, I could, I could see that being an argument. Um, but it, it can be a nightmare trying to sort through and like adverse effects like that kind of keep you up at night. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and actually, when you look through those case reports, there was a lot of um, people didn't want to tell the poison center what was actually happening with the patient. They were giving them a, a rate in milliliters per minute. They were trying to clarify dose, lots of, lots of issues there. And then when it all came down to it, it turns out getting a massive dose. But yeah, I will say you're never, you're almost never wrong. To just restart your whole regimen. Which is typically what I do. That makes me feel better. I wasn't going to come out and say that, but that makes me feel better. (laughs) Worst comes to worst, just restart it. (laughs) 
Sometimes that was done at the at the recommendation of the Poison Center, who who are always consulted for these. Um, yeah. Now, when when do you actually look at changing from the kind of standard regimen? And if you could, as you're talking about this, let us know what is considered a quote unquote massive overdose, because um, I'm curious if there's a consensus recommendation. I saw everything all over the place varied from level to weight based to sheer amount of ingestion so um and maybe maybe there is no answer and that's what makes it fun um but let us know that and kind of when you start to get your wheels churning of like uh uh-oh we need to go from the standard to the high versus the super high dose so in general and some of this comes from the adam two study I really look at serum concentrations over the 450 line, especially if earlier. That's when I'll say, all right, double the dose, right? Just, just go for it. Just double your, double your dose. And really in a pinch, the right way to do that is to double the infusion rate of that last, of that six and a quarter, just instead of trying to double the concentration, right? Just go ahead and run it at, twice the speed that's a that's a um, an easy way to describe it and to tell them right because logistically oh yeah that can be challenging to do so i think that's a really easy pearl um for those to keep it safe right but to make sure that you're you're uh, getting the patient what they need right and i don't really want to try to be explaining how to build in epic or cerner a double concentration nap bag for anybody at two o'clock in the morning and I just want to say, no, just double the speed and know that you're going to have to replace it sooner. Yep. Um, so the, the massive, oh, man, uh, pick a number between 30 and 50, and you're right. Pick a number between 500 and 1,000 milligrams per kilogram, also right. And you're talking I don't think about, anybody a, you're talking about that's, that's acetaminophen ingestion when you say that, correct? Like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah. Yep. That, that's a dose, 30 to 50 grams, right? Yeah. Yep. I don't think anybody would argue that the 200 gram acetaminophen, not massive, like that's clearly a massive ingestion. Yeah. But when you're trying to get into it, right, pick a number. You're right. It's, yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a nice, review article by Rob Hendrickson in Clintox. He has all the levels, the 300 line, the 450 line, the 600 line, and recommended administration rates, right? Six and a quarter, 12 and a half, 18.75, 25. Using it's- I honestly, the like Friday before this case came in, I was texting one of our um, MedTox guys, And we were joking about never wanting to use four times dosing. I was like, oh, what kind of crap is that? We'll never do it. And then this case came in and we're like, oh, you're Tylenol level 700. Guess what you're getting? Four times that dosing. (laughs) And then the next Friday, I was like, hey, what else? What other ridiculous things do we want to text about so that Monday we have a case? (laughs) 
It's that's this article that you're referencing is it's going to be in the reference list. It's a 2019 review article. It's really it's really good um, for an awesome background into this stuff. And like you said, there's a beautiful chart. And he actually the the author goes into the math as to how they how they calculated and using the same basis right that that um they did for the initial uh nomogram and dosing and things so um exactly just a really, really cool a really great article a really good point to highlight there he also put in there um the osmolality of the the drug at higher and higher concentrations of NAC to show whether it's safe or not to be given Right, so you can actually concentrate it versus giving large volume, a large or a faster rate. So, yeah, it's really nice. I actually, I think we've incorporated it into our guidelines. We just send it off, uh, and then we just double the speed every time instead of making new bags. So, um, when we're talking about the the kind of massive ingestion side of things, um, do you? Is there a point where like a lot of what I'm what I've kind of read is you keep the initial pieces the same. Um, you keep the the 150 and then the 12.5 mix per kick the same. And it's the it's the third piece that you change. Is that true? Is there ever a time that you're just bumping up all of it or is it you're, the the first two are high enough to kind of settle in that then you focus on increasing the last the 6.25 mix per kick dose? So I've never recommended changing either the first or second dose. Part of it is it's all happening so fast and yes. it's already so confusing, right? People don't like those, don't like doing that math, right? And like I said, I mostly just double the rate for the last one. That's, that's how, how we try to keep it easy and keep it simple, so I've never messed with it. I assume that there's enough there or they're going to be getting enough during that, you know, last infusion that it's, that it's enough. I mean, even if you have, you know, if your your rate drops, you know, if it goes up higher, so you're going up to yeah. 25 per kilo per hour, like, I, I don't care. It, it's too short of a period to even really worry about it. But it's a good question. It is discussed a lot. So, and when you're, let's say we're doing that higher dose, right? Maybe that 18.75, three to, or maybe even 25, three to four times what our normal one is. Are there any effects from like a lab assay interference that we need to kind of be, be aware of, um, have a little more heightened uh, acuity? I I can think of a couple, but I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't want to lead you one way. So we might see a little bit more changes in INR. We, we think, maybe. Yeah. Um, as we know, INR in patients with acetaminophen on NAC will be elevated. It's usually about two. We actually did a study with one of our old fellows three years ago, two years ago at this point, uh, where we spiked um, healthy volunteers' blood, a.k.a. our poison specialist's blood, <laughs> with NAC to see uh, what the, um, if there was an effect on INR. Really, we had to get super therapeutic, massive concentrations, uh, equivalent to like much, much higher than even the 150 per kilo dose. Okay. So I don't really know that you're going to see that much of a change. There are some studies out there that have looked at it. They used also massive concentrations. 
that are not are way super physiologic for even being treated. So I, I really wouldn't be that worried about it. Uh, okay, so let's now um, let's shift a little bit from the massive and think of just our 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 maybe not our standard, but kind of somewhere in the middle. And what are you looking at um, lab or clinically wise? And when do you recommend to cancel that standard twenty one hour endpoint and continue NAC um, for? This is no offense. What sometimes feels like indefinitely in some patients, but but uh, but but longer than the than the twenty one hours. It is. It is in fact indefinite. <laughs> it is until transplant, recovery, or death. Um, and, and really, if their AST ALT is still climbing, you're you're treating, right? If their acetaminophen concentration is still elevated. And this is a really, this is a sticking point. There's a really interesting um, letter to the editor written by some people from New York that I think it's called Reclaiming the Definition of Recovery and basically are, are pushing back against acetaminophen concentrations being measured down to three, right? Because a concentration of three is not toxic. And historically, we use 15 or 20, right? Um, so when it's really less than 15, 20, then you can say done. But if you're over that, you're treating, you're continuing past your 21 hours. Um, and then we'll stop once their AST, ALT is dropping 25, 50%. Ask a few other people, you get 10 or 12 different answers. Um, INR is less than two and their mental status is pretty much normalized. That's what we're looking for. So this this may be the the most um, hot button topic of them all, but when you look at the FDA package insert um, with N-acetylcysteine, it kind of recommends a, a dose cap at 100 kilograms with no real rationale cited, right? And I'm saying this from from either side. So is there enough evidence really to make an argument for? Um, for having one side of another of capping versus no capping to this? No, there really isn't. <laughs> yeah. um, it's based on really limited data. I think historically it's based on having a smaller population, right? So if you didn't have any patients or if you had patients that were 105, 105 kilograms, right? Totally reasonable to cap at 105 kilograms. If you have 120, 140, 160, it's a different scenario. Um, there are a couple of small studies. One, uh, two showed no difference, I think. One showed, I think, worse outcomes um, when the cap it was very small, very limited, very limited data. Um, and, and you have to remember that historically, NAC was intended to detoxify about 16 grams of acetaminophen. Right, the acetaminophen volume industry is about 0.8 liters per kilo. So, if you know a 10 kilogram child has an acetaminophen concentration of 150, they have a lot less acetaminophen in them than I do at 80 kilos. Right, that's it's a different situation. And so, if you're talking about 120, 140, 160, you know, 200 kilograms, you're talking about a different 
quantity of acetaminophen. It's not about glutathione stores. It's about drug. It always comes back to Paracel. Right? Um, I will just use an actual body weight. I am totally fine capping up to about 120 kilograms. And realistically, at 120 kilograms, it's another full vial of NAC. Right? You're, you're just giving that rest of the thing. The, one of the biggest problems is we way over-treat. Way over-treat. Yep. Rumac Matthew nomogram, right? We added a 25% buffer. It is almost impossible to study this in high-quality studies when you're treating, you know, 150s, 170s, right, for our initial serum concentration. You're never going to find a difference, whether you, whether you cap or not. So, yeah. Like I said, I will uncap at one twenty. Everything below that, just leave it. And and it feels like the argument the argument for not capping is efficacy, right? You want to make sure it's working in these patients. The argument for capping would be probably cost and I guess you'd say adverse effect, right? Reduction if um maybe saying it's concentration related. I'm trying to think I feel like those are the t- right, maybe. Um I, I don't know. It's hundred and sixty bucks. I'm not picking a side for the record. I'm, this is me. I dip my toes in. I'm just dropping information and walking out. I'm not uh, picking one or the other. <laughs> um, now, other dose considerations. So a lot of times, right, these patients are going to be sick. They're going to be on CRT for these massive injections. They might get hemodialysis. What are dose adjustments we need to think of as pharmacists um, for those cases? Do we, do we inc- empirically increase, decrease any changes needed? Yeah, so intermittent hemodialysis, double your dose. Interestingly, this discussion at 1 o'clock in the morning was, hey, his level is greater than 400. He's acidemic, so he probably meets criteria to dialyze. And I said, just just double your dose, right? You could probably argue to quadruple the dose. I wasn't going to go there. I just said, nope, we're just doubling it. Leave it there. But we know that about 50% of NAC is pulled off during hemodialysis. CRT doesn't really need anything to do. Uh, you don't really need to make any adjustments. Now, this is going to be separate from our from our patient case here, but um, early cessation of NAC, right? You talk about um, our probably over-treatment. Right. So I'm not talking about for the confirmed patients, right, that we have all the levels of stuff, but like, um, is there a t- like, is there a time that we can stop the infusion early in some cases? Yes, please do. Please. <laughs> uh, so a lot of times what we'll have is somebody who comes in, their acetaminophen concentration is 30. There's no history, right? You have no idea what the time one time was. LFTs are normal, totally reasonable to give the loading dose and recheck in four hours, right? If their acetaminophen concentration is undetectable, AST, ALT are stone cold normal, you're not going to develop liver failure, right? Does that happen? Not a lot, even though we tell them. It is actually one issue with the one bag regimen, right? So if you build all 300 milligrams per kilogram into that one bag, you might as well give them the whole thing, right? Yep, yep, yep. 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 Although you could probably argue that if your option is clear them to psych or have them get this drug, 
you're probably better off clearing them to psych, but a lot of times you've just wasted all those vials. If, if it's, if it's a drug that's not doing a whole lot and it's standing between them getting cleared for psych, that drug's getting stopped 98% of the time, (laughs) at least from my, from, from my experience. Um, now this is a, I'll, I'll toss in a couple of questions that I, I think of as some of my soapboxes with it. And this is one of them. And, um, in exclusively for acetaminophen overdose, right? And it's effects on those labs, right? You mentioned INR and things are going up. Do these patients need 10 milligrams of IV vitamin K for three days? Do all of these patients need it? Talk us through um, the use of phytonodione in these patients, Jimmy. So in my opinion, they need zero milligrams IV yes. for three days. Yes. Right, you're not deficient in vitamin K. You don't have an inhibitor of your vitamin K epoxide reductase, right? You have cooked your synthetic capacity with your liver. You don't need vitamin K. And also, some of the rise in INR, like we already mentioned, is due to NAC, right? Might be due to acetaminophen, right? And then we already talked about the King's College criteria. One thing you're tracking INR, don't mess with it. Don't mess with it, right? And also, there's some really interesting stuff out there about rebalanced hemostasis, right? So you have this person that's in acute liver failure, but do we know, you know, they've depleted their um, factor seven, so their INR is coming up, but have they also depleted their protein CNS? So are they just, they have a high INR, but they're still at risk of clotting, right? Or their normal coagulopathy. So just don't give it, don't give it unless they're actively bleeding, right? If they are, sure, go for it. Why not try? Well, they, there are, there are published reports of, of what patients tags look like after they've, the viscoelastic testing shows that a lot of their coags don't look as out of sort as their, um, as like their, INR and things might, right? Which makes sense to us, but like, thank you. Thank you for putting it out there for the people because that is, there are just some things that just get under your skin, right? And this is just one yeah. of them, for whatever reason, for whatever reason. Um, Very much so. And, and vitamin K may or may not increase your clotting risk. <laughs> so we don't really know. Now let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the new kid on the block, the next hot thing. I would say in the in the toxicology kind of critical care world here is is fomepazole in acetaminophen overdose. So um, mechanistically, how do we think it works? I guess that's maybe the best way to phrase it because do we know exactly how it works or is this one of those where we think its mechanism of action plays a specific role, kind of fits a puzzle into another mechanism? We think that it works partially due to CYP2E1 inhibition, right? Totally reasonable. Ethanol does the same thing, right? If you drink several shots of vodka and take acetaminophen at the same time, it's a little bit hepatoprotective, right? You're going to inhibit your 2E1 metabolism. Reasonable. And then there's C-junk inhibition, which essentially reduces amplification of mitochondrial damage. There's a lot of hand-waving involved in some of these mechanisms of action, 
but it, it seems to, you know, prevent this like significant oxidative damage that can occur when given to mice. <laughs> Got it. And it, I mean, it is, it is a hot button. If you ask four toxicologists, you probably get five to seven different opinions. Do you know what they call a group of toxicologists? What? An argument. <laughs> That's funny you say that. I'm thinking of three toxicologists that instantly came to my mind, and they're they're about as good at arguing with you and and proving their point or trying to or trying to play devil's advocate as anyone else. So it's uh you're not wrong. It's <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> So do we use this two-parter? Is the dosing the same that we're, that we're used to, the toxic alcohol ingestion dosing? And um, are we reserving this for our adjunct in massive overdoses exclusively? There's really kind of case reports and case series. And what kind of patients have they, have they been using Fomepazole in? Uh, so the dose, sure. Why not? That's the dose we know. I think we had a few that I just said, like, you know, you're not wrong to just give the whole vial because that vial is used, right? It's 1.5 grams. Yep. Go for it, right? I think we've only had a couple that, that I've been excited about using. This case specifically was one, right? The kid's got an acetaminophen concentration that is astronomically elevated. He's got ongoing absorption, right? The idea here is you're really trying to halt this mitochondrial injury. Um, and so I was like, give a dose, right? And then we kept giving doses because the medicine concentration was still really, really high. Um, and when it's being used, I think it's mostly in some of the published stuff out there, it's massive acetaminophen overdose almost for most of the time. Um, mechanistically, it makes the most sense to do it early. Right, you see this yep. like activation of uh, mitochondrial uh, injury early on, so that's when you would go ahead and give it. I'll be honest; we're doing a, a study where we're looking at all of the deaths reported to poison centers that that people got it, and it gets given at all kinds of times. All kinds. Acetaminophen undetectable, done, been done. There's a there was actually a survey that was done um, in conjunction with a toxic study. And they said half of over half would consider it if acetaminophen was low or negative. So the, the battles we pick. So wait a second here. So are are we sure it's as efficacious as we think? Because I, I asked this. We're getting in like there people are arguing over whether the dose cap IV N acetylcysteine due to cost, and then we're just giving vials of fomepazole to to patients, which is which is um, I would argue a lot more expensive than an acetylcysteine. Um, like what, what's your, what are your thoughts? Do we think, do we think it's as efficacious as we think? I think it's not harmful. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is an RCT. Uh, I think they have 40 patients that are planned. Um, I, I was trying to look at the inclusion criteria. It's on clinicaltrials.gov. They're using the uh, aminotransferase acetaminophen multiplier multiplication product, one prognostic tool you can use. 
but they're using a value of 3,000 or higher. So if you have an acetaminophen concentration of 150 and your AST or ALT is 20, you can enter that study. That's how I'm interpreting it. And, and I think that's not going to find a difference if you don't have very, very, very sick patients, right? If you have run-of-the-mill acetaminophen that have, they're already way over-treated, like I said before, we have a very sensitive treatment line that's not specific, you're going to end up with probably no difference depending on how sick that population is. But again, mechanistically, it makes sense I don't get excited most of the time for using it. Periodically, I will. I don't know. I, and I don't know. But I think it's not harmful, and it makes sense from a mechanism standpoint. So maybe more to come, but what you're saying is this is probably going to be getting used more and more, and in some of the cases, we could probably argue that it's not adding a whole lot to our care, but it's probably not hurting our care either. Is that an accurate summation? hundred percent, hundred percent. And I know that it's risen because we looked at the number of cases where it was given in deaths, and it was like this. Over the last like two years, it went from like 20 cases a year, and it just happened to be maybe a toxic alcohol and acetaminophen to like 150 cases in the last year of that, that data collection that we did. So yeah, it's on the rise. You know, and a, a we'll drug see. shortage, a drug shortage is going to solve this all. I remember I had to like titrate alcohol at one point for somebody because we had no fomepazole. So, um, you know, that if, if the use continues to go up, I have a hard time believing that fomepazole is immune from the world we live in, but okay, let's, we've, We've hit on all right, all the things that's been doom and gloom, things have been getting worse. We've been adding things on, right? And we've been talking about a lot of our salvage therapies. Um, what are some signs or labs or symptoms that that we're getting better? What are what are things to look for that hey, we're we're turning the corner, you know, maybe things are getting better, um, and we're seeing some improvement. What does that what does that look like clinically? You know, like I said you start to have a decrease in your AST, ALT, and this is usually fairly dramatic, right? Maybe it peaks at 7, 10, 15,000, and then your AST comes down almost 25% in 6 to 12 hours. And it's just because it's essentially resolving, right? You, your acetaminophen is gone. You've knacked that person to the moon and back. And they are, they're turning around, right? That whole recovery phase is like dropping LSTs or ASCALT, dropping serum creatinine, PT, INR normalizing, mental status improving, acidosis improving, all of these things. And patients just, you know, start to look well in general. It's amazing. It's amazing. The, the recovery is just, it's very rapid. So keeping in mind, right, when, when we try to do takeaways or summaries, it can be hard in something where there's many nuances as this. But um, Jimmy said he, that this is possible here. So if we can boil all of this down to one ultimate takeaway, if you want people to remember one 
thing from our discussion when we're treating or involved in the care of acetaminophen overdose patients? What would that be? 1-800-222-1222, right? Involve the poison center. If you have a toxicologist at bedside, involve them as well, right? We deal with this stuff all the time, right? If you wake me up, at one o'clock in the morning and say, I have an acetaminophen concentration greater than 700. I'm going to say, all right, let's talk. Let's go. This is, this is interesting, right? This is what we're here for. Our poison specialists, right? Lots of them have years and years of experience, thousands of cases, right? And then you get to talk to some toxicologist that you woke up two o'clock in the morning. That's super excited because this is a really interesting case. So, Again, 800-222-1222. Call the Poison Center. Get us involved. We love to be there. Love to answer the questions. I mean, when you call your Poison Center, right, like uh, it it directs you to, to your local areas, right? So if, if you're in that Baltimore area, you're calling. Jimmy might answer the phone, right? You're, you're talking to your peers and colleagues who are who – are, experts who have studied and they know all these things. Um, and they, as someone who has called people at two and three in the morning, right? They are some of the nicest people to interact with 24 seven. So, um, thank you for plugging that. Um, there's a big lead in, but very, very important. Um, Jimmy, thanks so much. What an awesome discussion talking about this, um, complicated, um, topic in and of itself, giving us some of the nuances, some of the details behind it. Um, we appreciate you coming back on. It was a blast, you know, talking about this, talking about really complex cases. Like I said before, you know, acetaminophen is one that we know tons and tons about. And yet every year at NAC, there's always more stuff that's being presented and published and whatnot, right? Cause it's always, it's changing. It's it's cutting edge. It's really, it it is a fantastic topic because you can cover it in two minutes or twenty five hours, right? Whichever one you want to do. There's a talk for that. I like that. We settled somewhere in the middle, which is a great thing. Uh, but Jimmy, thanks again. I appreciate you. Everyone, reach out to him on Twitter at Leonard JBRX. Appreciate you. Another huge thanks to Jimmy Leonard for coming back on. Um, if you have thoughts, feedback, want to reach out to me, please do. A Twitter, Instagram, at pharmacy to dose, T-O to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the reference list with the articles we discussed today and more is featured in the podcast episode description as well as pharmacy to dose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.